Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of a current affairs right across Australia on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Amina Shakur coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show. Being an Indigenous woman, um, I've always, yeah, loved, loved space. A First Nations student is advocating for more Indigenous representation in STEM. Australia's largest clean-up environmental event is set to be held this Sunday. And later today... And if we don't see any significant shift in treatment, that number is set to almost double. The study shows how dementia will double in prevalence in the next 30 years. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. A Melbourne University student is advocating for more First Nation representation in STEM fields. Talima, a Gandigara woman, is studying her Masters in Mechanical Engineering and has just returned from a recent internship with NASA. I speak to Tully about her experience at NASA and advocating for more First Nations students in STEM. Congratulations on your time at NASA. Can you share with us uh, what that opportunity means for you personally and, and how that whole experience was? Yeah, the experience was genuinely incredible. So I went over as a part of the National Indigenous Space Academy, which is a new program that's been founded for Indigenous students studying at a tertiary level to have an internship at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the US. So it was a genuinely life-changing experience. I had the chance to interact with NASA scientists and engineers, some of the greatest minds in the world. And learn from them, their research, uh, was able to see myself in different fields and different career like industries. So it was, yeah, a truly, truly inspiring experience. Yeah. And um, as an, I guess, an, an Indigenous woman uh, pursuing a um, Master's of Mechanical Engineering, um, what's inspired you to pursue a career in STEM? Well, from a young age, I've always been fascinated by the mysteries of the universe. I've always loved space. Um, and I also always really loved science and maths and I guess more so, like more broadly, just problem solving. So when I got to high school, I very much liked all the science and math subjects and all the STEM subjects and just, I guess, found myself following that career path. And as I kind of finished my undergraduate degree, um, I did my undergrad in a Bachelor of Science, uh, majoring maths and minoring in physics and chemistry, so a little bit different to my current engineering degree. But as I got to the end of that degree, I found myself a little bit lost, to be perfectly honest, and um, decided to refocus my career back into the space industry. So that led me to looking into different opportunities and I really wanted to give engineering a go as well. So I, yeah, pursued um, my Master of Mechanical Engineering. It's, I'm specialising in aerospace, so the goal is to be working um, as an engineer and a scientist within the, within the space industry. And I guess being an Indigenous woman, um, I've always, yeah, loved, loved space, you know, looking up to the stars and thinking of the dream time. And, yeah, applying that, Applying that to a career, I think, is a huge, huge benefit for me. 
Um, I know at the start we talked a bit about, I guess, your experience at NASA, but is there was there any specific projects or tasks you were most excited to, to work on um, during your internship or worked on? Yeah, so while I was over there, I actually was, um, I, had, I had my own project. So I was working in the Origins and Habitability Laboratory, which is under the Planetary Science Division, and I was investigating um, like different chemical compositions that affect the morphology of hydrothermal vents. So lots of jargon there, but um, essentially just looking at um, these systems that exist on Earth and how we can translate our understanding of these systems and how life originated on these systems to other interplanetary bodies. So it was a really exciting project. It was uh, a little bit outside my field, but I really loved that it was kind of just outside my comfort zone. And yeah, dive, like dive right in there um, and continuing to work on that project now, even though I'm back in Australia and getting a research paper out of it, actually. So I'm very excited for that opportunity. I'm really, I'm really passionate about this advocacy work. I guess, obviously, I am a minority. There's um, Indigenous Australians are severely underrepresented in the field of STEM um, and women as well. So um, for me, I, I, I want to be able to... I guess, be successful in this field so that other people like me can see themselves in this career. And I think visibility is really, really important. So that's one branch. And then on top of that, I am involved in um, a variety of different outreach programs to advocate for you know, Indigenous Australians and women um, to pursue a career in STEM. What more can be done to encourage more Indigenous uh, students into fields like, like STEM? Yeah, well, I actually think um, it starts with sparking the interest. I think that that is that is where a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of this um, work, but you know, interest in STEM comes from is actually just young Indigenous Australians being exposed to the field. I think they're often discounted as you know not being capable or even just you know being being in a rural community or they have all these other roadblocks that are going to prevent them from pursuing that. And so I was just involved in a um, program called Return to Country, which is from the University of Melbourne. It's an inaugural program, um, which was just run this year. And um, we went out to rural communities in Australia to work with some of the Indigenous students out there. And we ran some STEM engagement workshops. And just to see that these students were really engaged in the workshops that we were doing but didn't necessarily understand that that is what the world of STEM is. I think a lot of people have a misinterpretation of what science and engineering and maths and technology can look like um, in a career. So that was a really, really fun program to do, actually. It was really um, inspiring even for me just to go out into these communities and help these young, young Indigenous Australians be exposed to the field. So my, yeah, my personal... Um, I guess opinion is that it needs to start from a young age. You need to show that these career opportunities are available and that they're achievable as well. And I think that starts with visibility and also just exposure. That was Melbourne University student Tully Ma speaking to The Wire. This Sunday, the 3rd of March, we'll see millions of Australians come together to help clean up the environment. Clean Up Australia Day started over 30 years ago by an average Australian who had the idea of making a difference to the environment. 
The day has now evolved into the nation's largest community-based environmental event. Vanessa Gatika speaks to Pip Kernan, the chair of Clean Up Australia, about how the event all started. That was Pip Kernan from Clean Up Australia speaking to the wise Vanessa Gatika. Yes, so it was established back in 1989 by my father Ian Kiernan. He was a solo yachtsman and a builder and it was during one of his races around the world that he was really struck by the amount of pollution in our ocean, particularly plastic pollution. So that really drove him to come back and start something to address that back in his own country. And he started with Clean Up Sydney Harbour in 1989 and 40,000 Sydney turned up for that first event. And then the following year it became a national event with Clean Up Australia Day. Uh, so over that time we've had more than 21 million volunteers join us to Clean Up Australia. And we're best known for that. Week of Action we Clean Up Australia Day in the first week of March every year and Schools Clean Up Day the Friday before and Business Clean Up Day the Tuesday before. But our work continues all year round, so we support the community uh, to clean up any day of the year and many, many groups do do that all through the year. And we also do a lot of work around prevention of litter, so we put out lots of information um, on our website and our blogs and through media around what are the simple things each of us can do to prevent litter at the outset and also working with businesses to try and address um, the amount of single-use waste we generate, the amount of litter that we produce. Clean Up Australia Day has become a significant environmental event. How do you envision this year's event contributing to raising awareness and fostering a sense of environmental responsibility among participants. The great thing about participating in a clean-up event is that it really does change the way you think about litter and about what you buy, what you consume, um, and our day-to-day habits. So once you've done clean-up, it's so practical and it's, it's very encouraging because you can see in your efforts over just an hour how much litter you can pull out of the environment, spurs us on to do other things in our day-to-day life around, you know, well, what are the items I can avoid? Um, How can I use more reusable items rather than single-use items that create this litter in the first place? Uh, So it it really spurs people on to their sustainability journey. Close to 1.1 million volunteers that joined us through that full year um, through a group called cool.org. And um, it's fun to reach young people and help them in, um, in their efforts to be more sustainable. Considering the influence of fast fashion on the environment, what step is Clean Up Australia taking to raise awareness and encourage sustainable practices within the fashion industry? Fashion is a topic that we talk about frequently at Clean Up Australia because um Textile and fashion waste actually contribute so much to what goes to landfill every year. And a lot of it is um, effectively plastic textiles, so synthetic materials that are plastic that uh, take so long to break down. And when they break down, it's into microplastics. And when they're in landfill, they give off 
methane. So we talk about thinking about how we can avoid fast fashion, how we can avoid these synthetic items that are made to be used for a short period of time and then tossed away. So things like can we rent something, can we borrow something, rather than thinking, oh, I'll just buy this item that I might just wear once and it, and it then gets discarded. Also, a thrift shop is that you're actually helping other charities as well. So not only are you helping the environment, um, the funds raised by those stores actually go on to many charities across Australia. So thinking about longevity, if you are buying a, a new item of clothing, trying to buy something that will be in your wardrobe for many, many years around um, that's better quality that can be repaired and then when you don't want it anymore, hand it off for a new life. There's some of the tips that we talk about in trying to reduce our footprint when it comes to fashion waste. To join Clean Up Australia on Sunday 3rd of March, register on cleanup.org.au. Research from Dementia Australia shows how people living with dementia will double in 30 years. With dementia being the second cause of death in Australia, we look into what can be done to improve the healthcare sector to combat such a surge. I speak with Dr. Kale Stokes, the Executive Director of Services at Dementia Australia, about the importance of increased support for the healthcare sector. All right, I'll get with dementia becoming a leading cause of death in Australia, how will this shift influence um, healthcare campaigns and medical research? Well, it's, it's a significant impact on all elements of our community. So we know that there's more than 421,000 people living with dementia at the current time. And if we don't see any significant shift in treatments, that number is set to almost double in the next 30 years. So that has an, a really significant impact on our healthcare services, our aged care services, uh, our all elements of the community and really a lot of people are impacted by dementia not only the person that's diagnosed but also their families their local communities their uh, friends it's, it's got a really huge uh, impact for, for lots of people yeah um, and how does the expected rise in dementia cases affect how resources are allocated well, we know that about 70% of people living with dementia actually live in the community and more than two-thirds of people living in residential aged care will have a moderate to severe cognitive impairment. So it's absolutely vital that we've got a workforce that's able to support people living with dementia and their families and carers. And that has a really important uh, impact on the way that we prepare our workforce, the way that we uh, train and educate people about dementia, especially those that are involved in the care of someone living with dementia. And we've got a long way to go because despite its prevalence, dementia is still largely misunderstood by the community and not well uh, understood by many healthcare workers as well. So it's really important that we focus and invest now in strategies to improve the education for people that are living with, uh, for workforces that are supporting people living with dementia. Yeah. And will we see a shift in um, healthcare policies and, I guess, end-of-life care now? 
Well, certainly there's been a huge amount of work by uh, the government around reforming aged care services to better support people living with dementia, but we do still have a long way to go. Um, End-of-life care for somebody living with dementia can be particularly challenging because we know that you have to have conversations a lot earlier uh, with somebody who has a cognitive impairment because dementia is a degenerative disease. And so it's really important that people that are diagnosed with dementia have conversations early on to identify what their end-of-life wishes are and talk to their friends and family about what they want because they might come to a point where they're not able to express those wishes uh, as their cognitive decline progresses. So it's really important that those conversations happen early and yet we don't really have the mechanisms in place for people to have those conversations, irrespective of whether you have dementia or not. We don't tend to be very good at talking about you know, our end-of-life plans and, and what we want to, to have a good death. But it's, it's really important for somebody that's got a cognitive impairment because it's an opportunity for them to express what they want. And we do find that end-of-life can be particularly challenging for healthcare professionals who may not necessarily uh, be able to identify the symptoms of pain, for example, in someone who's at their end of life because they're not able to express it. So having that stronger education and training is incredibly important. And what does this mean for the already struggling uh, regional healthcare system in Australia? Will it need more support and planning? Well, certainly regional uh, communities talk about the lack of access to services that they have currently. Often people living in regional and remote areas have to travel further. They don't have as many uh, specialist services easily accessible to them, so they may have to travel to be able to access those. And while there are a range of important things, including things like um, telehealth, uh, and, and online medical services that can make an enormous difference in helping people to uh, get a diagnosis of dementia and also get access to services and support. It's really important that we look at how our regional services can be uh, supported to better identify dementia in their communities and better support people that are diagnosed with dementia in their communities as well. And that might be that, um, you know, we have a much more integrated network of multidisciplinary care providers that you know can that can collaborate to provide the support that will make a difference to somebody. That was Dr. Kale Stokes, the executive director of services at Dementia Australia, speaking to the wire. Calls are growing for governments around the country to adopt Indigenous naming policies alongside English. Languages once pushed to the edge of existence are now being revitalised to honour First Nations people's heritage. National Radio News reporter Remy Norton asked co-chair for the First Nation People's Assembly of Victoria, Nara Murray, why the proposal is so important. Oh, it's so important because our communities have worked tirelessly to safeguard our Aboriginal languages for future generations, despite historical attempts to eradicate their usage. So Aboriginal language is fundamental to our identity, our communication and, and storytelling and celebrating International Mother Language Day. It's a day that embraces Indigenous languages all around Australia. Um, Australia's home to 250 distinct Aboriginal languages and many of those languages 
are deeply connected um, to our country. Speaking of those historical events that attempted to eradicate languages, how did First Nations people manage to save their language for future generations? Yeah, so that's something that obviously through colonisation we've had to work really hard, as I said, to safeguard our languages over future generations. So it's a big part of our identity, as I said, and it's really about us carrying on the language of our ancestors and elders because every language name that we have carries a story. So whether it's a connection to the land and the people, um, you know, it's really important for us to look at revitalising Aboriginal languages because it was pushed to the edge of existence following colonisation on these lands and our languages were banned. Like my own grandmother grew up on Kamragunja village and she was forbidden to speak her language and um, you know she was only allowed to go to grade three. So we've had to really protect the languages that still exist today. And in the past, you know, there was a concentrated effort to wipe us out and our culture off the face of this earth. So I think it's really important that you know we continue those languages. We've kept them alive through our ancestors and elders. And language is such a key part of our lives. How is continuing to keep it alive? How are you guys doing that or how is the country doing that rather? Yes, well from our perspective at the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria we are calling on governments and other institutions to really embrace our Aboriginal languages and, and dual naming places. So as I said, language is, is fundamental. So incorporating First Peoples languages into the fabric of our society is not just about the linguistic diversity but it's respecting and recognising and celebrating the heritage of our people. So we, we hope to see more public places, including, you know, streets and schools and hospitals with our language names uh, recognise and celebrate the oldest living culture in the world. So these are exciting um, topics that we'll be talking about as we enter into treaty negotiations this year and we'll likely see discussions on remaining policies. And how is Victoria different to other states when it comes to the acceptance of First Nations people? I think that in Victoria we're in a really strong position um, when we looked at um, voice, treaty, truth and those elements within the Uluru Statement, we were advancing all three and we've got significant support across the state supporting our people um, and calling on, on treaties for our people here in Victoria. So I think we're quite progressive in that way compared to other jurisdictions but obviously everyone across the country um, you know, is, is advancing their treaty and truth telling processes um, in their own way and at their own pace. So I think that in Victoria, it's exciting times for us as we enter into treaty negotiations with the state um, at some stage this year. Do you have an idea why treaty negotiations are only happening in Victoria and not in the other states? I can't speak for other jurisdictions, but for us, we've worked really hard um, over the last four and a half years to position the First People's Assembly as the Aboriginal representative body that will sit down with government and see us um, you know, undertake a, a statewide treaty and then traditional owner groups right around Victoria will activate their um, traditional owner treaties um, via our treaty negotiation framework that we have in place and that's been agreed to with the state but other jurisdictions, I know Queensland, they've got a treaty and truth telling process that's underway. Um, the Northern Territory Treaty Commission has done a lot of work over the last couple of years and even in um, South Australia, you know, next month Aboriginal people in South Australia will, will elect their voice in their um, upcoming elections. And even Tasmania, they've got their own treaty and truth. So I think it's all happening underway, but obviously we've done a lot of work with their treaty and truth telling in, in Victoria and we're really excited 
um, our people to prepare for negotiations. So what is the First People's Assembly and what is it calling for the government to do? Yeah, so the First People's Assembly of Victoria is the Aboriginal representative body made up of 32 traditional owners of country. We're working towards a treaty um, and many treaties with the state government and we'll sit down this year with the state to negotiate a number of different asks around our people here in this state. That was co-chair for First Nations People's Assembly of Victoria, Nara Murray, speaking with National Radio News' Remy Norton. And unfortunately, that is the end of today's show. Thank you so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2SER in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Kulin Nations where the program has been produced. And we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shakut coming to you from a 3ZZZ radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.